all I all I could do to train for worlds was visualize. So I would visualize a workout in real time. I would visualize going on the court and practicing in real time. I would visualize matches against opponents or even practice opponents um, in real time. If, if, a, if a workout session or a practice session was going to take me two and a half hours, that's how long it took me to do the visualization because I was extremely specific. That's the key to effective visualization is using all, all of your senses and being as specific and detailed as possible. Welcome to the Shark Effect Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Molden. I'm an NFL veteran of eight years, and now I'm an author, leadership and personal development coach, and international speaker. In this podcast, you will learn strategies to get unstuck in life and find your influence. You will hear inspirational and value-packed stories from former and current elite-level athletes, successful entrepreneurs, and experts in the field of personal development. My mission is to help former elite-level athletes find their identity and utilize their influence to create a life of impact. Hello, welcome to The Shark Effect. I'm your host, Alex Molden. You guys are in for a treat. I have an incredible guest on this week. Her name is Rhonda Rashich. And if you don't know, she is the most decorated racquetball player in U.S. history. But we're not going to really talk a whole bunch about racquetball. We're going to talk about her survival story. It is empowering. It is inspiring. And I know that it's going to help you look at things a little bit differently, especially things that you have to overcome, setbacks, roadblocks, any of those, those words, she's going to show you and help you understand the power of how you think and how you can envision greatness because she has a story that is amazing. I was in tears. So um, without further ado, let's dive in. Rhonda, thank you for being a guest on The Shark Effect. I'm really excited about our conversation. You know, I've, I've, um, I call myself an avid racquetball player and I would be lying. I, <laughs> I used to play a lot. I used to play a lot. I started when I was in college and um, I ended up, I, I played this female, you know, at the time we were, you know, we were dating and whatnot and wanted to play racquetball. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I went in there and she beat the brakes off me and it hurt my feelings really. It hurt my feelings a lot. Uh, and then my roommate, he did the exact same thing, beat the brakes off me. So I was like, fine, that's enough. I'm taking a class. So I took a summer school class on racquetball. You've done racquetball for, at a, for a very long time and at the highest level. So yes, I, I love talking with people who do things at a very high level and that have overcome some things um, to get to that position. And so when I found out about you and I started doing some research, I was like, oh, wow, I got to have her on. So thank you for being a guest on The Shark Effect. Thank you. Yeah. Can you tell my listeners a little bit more about your 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 background, like how you got started in, in, in racquetball and and, um, the, you know, where that's taking you? Certainly. Um, actually, I started playing racquetball at the tender age of two. Uh, no forced me into it. Um, my parents joined the health club when I was two and I figured out how to sneak out of the nursery. <laughs> and my father was just learning how to play racquetball. Uh, from my godfather, actually. Um, and I figured out how to sneak out, and I would kind of walk around the gym, dad, see which court he was on. And when I found him, like, oh, okay, there he is. And then I would go down to the basketball court that was kind of in the middle of all the, the, the rows of racquetball courts, grab a basketball and go do as much as a two-year-old can do with a basketball until my dad was in between games. And then I would run up and steal his racket and hop on the court around a little bit and you know he'd come in he's like okay kid give the big people the racket back now what are you doing out here anyway where's your mother you know Uh, I don't think that my parents realized I was sneaking out I think my dad always thought my mom took me out my mom probably always thought my dad took me out (laughs) it wasn't (laughs) until I started doing interviews like this that they realized wait what 
out of there. Would you would you climb over the was there like a fence or no? A, the, no, a there desk? was a, there was a door. There was a door, but you remember those uh those wooden blocks that had like letters on them and numbers on them and different colors, yeah, yeah. like the little little play building blocks yep, type of thing. Yep. Well, I figured out that if I just held on to one of those long enough for with their kid, I could stick it in the door so the door didn't close on my fingers while I tried to pull it open. And then while the staff was checking in the other kid, I bounced. <laughs> is that right? Wow. I don't want to be in there. That is hilarious. I don't want to be playing with stuffed animals. I wanted to be playing with I wanted to be playing with the, the sports equipment, man. Okay. Let me out. <laughs> cool. Oh, so yeah. okay, so so with racquetball, so 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 you got started sneaking out. And just watch, Rag- and just yeah, racquetball and basketball, and just watch racquetball and basketball. and basketball. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, well, fast forward, just not too long, but my, my I was five, mm-hmm. and my father kind of took uh, took on racquetball as his form of therapy mm. in a way. He just kind of dove headfirst into, you know, playing tournaments and and taking camps and clinics and getting instruction, and um, you know, I would go two weeks with my mom and two weeks with my with my dad. We would get up at 5 a.m. every morning and go to the gym. And before everybody comes down on Pops for that, uh, I was the one dragging him out of bed at 5 a.m. You know, it's plenty of times he wanted to sleep in. You know, he's working long hours himself. So I'm like, yeah, let's go. Let's go. He's like, can we can we stay home today? I'm like, you, I want to go to the gym. Like, my desire to be in the gym was my own. Nobody made me do that. Nobody forced me to get up at 5 a.m. to go practice and play and, you know, all that before school. Yeah. I wanted to. Mm. And I wanted to do it after school, too. So I did. We actually started um, a, a junior mm. um, when I was about 11 or tw- uh, 12 or 13, maybe. Um, so I was a, a president of junior team Arizona racquetball for as long as I was competing in the junior championships. And it it grew. We had we ended up having probably I'd say twelve to fifteen, sixteen kids that that would travel and try to make the junior national team and junior worlds and all that stuff. And you know, it was it was a good it was a good you know grass grassroots movement getting getting uh you know junior racquetball more involved, more popular in the state. And um, I mean, it was a lot of fun. I nobody again, nobody made me do anything. I didn't. Played basketball in school, had a full ride to a D1 school for basketball, intended on playing in the WNBA, and then accidentally qualified for the U.S. team in racquetball a whole lot earlier in my life than I thought I would. And from that experience, um, within months of that happening, uh, that they were starting up a whole new women's pro tour. And um, I was kind of at this strange crossroads timing-wise with basketball, and my father and I discussed it, and he said... um, well, you've always put racquetball behind basketball. Why don't you just try the pro tour for a year, see how you do if you actually focus on racquetball first. And to basketball, it's not like you're going to be out of shape. Yeah. I'm like, okay. So that's what I did. And <laughs> I ended up making the finals of my first ever U.S. Open, taking out the number one player in the world at the time along the way, and finished my rookie season ranked number three in the world. Wow. And I'm like, you can do this for a while. Wow. Look at I'd expect it to last, you know, 23 years, Wow! I never turned back. I never turned back. So interesting. So I listen a little bit differently. And for me, well, here's a question. Would you have the same experience if your parents stayed together? I think so. My, both of my parents were very active. Um, my father's the oldest of five boys, all five of them played professional something. Uh, my father played two years of pro baseball and semi-pro basketball. Um, his next youngest brother, my uncle Tim, baseball as well. They actually both played for the Brewers, I believe. Then my uncle David, uh, played baseball. He won a world series with the Yankees. Um, uncle Gary also played baseball. Uh, they're both, they're both still in the game. Um, up until recently when they retired, uh, Uncle David was a and uh, Gary was a scout. Gary ended up getting his World Series ring as a scout when the Red Sox finally won. Mm. Um, and then my Uncle Robbie still holds the record for the longest punt at the University of Miami. Then he kicked for the Chargers for a minute. And then uh, there's a puppy tail. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, <laughs> and then he became a professional. 
So, so the whole the whole family was athletic, and my and my mother um, played played sports um, in school back when girls didn't play sports, and she did not have the family support. Mm. Like, and her her parents were of the of the mindset and experience and time in their lives where sports, and they they stayed home in the kitchen. Yeah, you know? yeah. And and so my mother had to get her friends to give her rides to uh, soccer practice or basketball or whatever it was that she did. So, um, you know, it was a very different experience for her growing up, but she was still very athletic, um, very talented. She probably could have played pro had the support. Mm. Yeah. Um, I watched her play as a kid and I, you know, knowing what I saw then and what I see now on TV, I'm like, damn, I think my mom was right there. Uh-huh. She just had no, no support system for, for, you know, following, following that dream. Yeah. I would um, just, I, I, but yeah. I want to, to, to see, because there's, there's fruit that can come from anything. I believe. Um, one of the things, you, you know, I, I talk about, um, uh, you know, my knee. So I have two screws in this, in my left knee, I got a scar about nine inches long. And for so long, I thought that in spite of me, I was able to, to do play a kid's game at the highest level for eight years. And I did, I did some digging and I was like, no, it was because of that. It was because of this injury. It created um, a relationship with the, with a world renowned, a world renowned strength and speed coach who we didn't know how good he was, but I got a chance because of this injury to work with him one-on-one, one-on-one for like five months. He taught me how to run. So the, the things that happen in our lives, divorce, uh, injuries, um, hold something that, you know, that, you know, that, that sting and that's painful that can drive you to become better. And so I was just listening, like with that divorce, with that, you know, your dad, he, he ended up, you know, kind of using, like you said, right. Using racquetball as therapy. And, yeah. and, and then of course your drive wanting to get up and go play with him. Maybe that started, you know, maybe that was the scene. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Um, my, my godfather always took credit for it too. You know, mm. every time I won something pops would let, you know, this is all your fault. <laughs> You're the one who got me started. That means I got her started. Yeah. Uh, fun fact. I am the only, only child as far in any direction as I am aware of on both sides of my family. All of my cousins are siblings. All of my cousins have multiple kids. My cousins have multiple kids. I'm, I'm the only, only child of any relatives living or, or not unalive that, that I'm aware of as far back as, as I've ever been told. Oh, is that, which is the only, only child. the only, only child. So I'll just take that. That makes a, you extraordinarily go. <laughs> my, 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 my buddy asked me about that. And I said, I said, no, I'm the only, only, only child. Uh-huh. Like really anywhere. And he goes, oh, you broke the mold. Uh, yes, that's it. <laughs> so, okay. That sounds good. We'll go with that. <laughs> so, so tell me like, okay, so you're playing racquetball, right? Instead of basketball. And you, you just accidentally became like, the best how did you continue like with that whole um journey of the like man being at the top um you know world class like how did you two things um one i've never lost sight of the fact that racquetball is a sport it's a game it's supposed to be fun they're all supposed to be fun. If it's not fun anymore, then don't do it. Right. If it's not fun, find something else to do or find a, a new way to inject joy back into what you're doing. It's time to move on because, again, it's, it's a game and it's supposed to be fun. If you're one of those people that gets pissed off playing Monopoly, find another game. You know, like, yeah. Go find something that brings you joy. And, and I've, I've never lost the childlike joy of running around and playing a game. And it's a fun game. We like the outcome but it's it's a fun Sometimes. game <laughs> see it's a it is it's a, it's a it's a beautiful game i feel like the world is really um you know missing out uh in in what it has to offer in so many ways um from a player and a spectator standpoint um that said the other 
is I've never stopped chasing improvement. Mm. To quote Michael Jordan, the day I stop improving is the day I walk away from the game. When I have nothing else that I could possibly improve upon or nothing else that I am capable of being better at. And so just always that next to chase. There's always that next, you know, and I mean, even, even now for as long as I've played, uh, I'm getting ready for our national championships coming up at the end of the month. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to work out and practice right after this. Okay. But uh, when I, you know, even in, even in these practices, I mean, I, I've got national singles titles. It's not like I'm, I'm chasing my first and that, you know, haven't gotten it yet, but there's that, that hunger and that fire is exactly the same every single, every single time, because I'm, I still have room to improve. I still have the ability to get better and I can measurably tell that I am certain things, certain things that I used to struggle with or that I was, you know, I could do it, but I wasn't super confident or consistent with it. I, I can do them automatically now. So I have a question. I, because, you know, there's some people who don't know racquetball and I look at it and for me, it's, it's like about angles and it's about um, seeing things before they happen and having strategy. What things in racquetball, you're doing it at such a high level, like what things kind of mirrors life? Can you do that a little bit? Um, <laughs> everything. <laughs> uh, so for me, it's about, it's less complicated than that. I mean, it's about pattern recognition. I mean, mm. it, it, like you said, seeing things before they happen. It's pattern recognition. There's only the laws of physics dictate that the ball can only do so many things in that 20 by 40 by 20 space. And when you have seen it happen and recognize the beginning of a pattern, that you know where it's going to end up again before it gets there. Fast as the sport is, pattern recognition is obviously critical to knowing where to move, obviously, before you have the physical ability to catch up to a ball that's moving at our level, 160 to 200 miles an hour. Hold on. Well, hold on. The ball is moving how fast? Really damn you fast. Say, goodness gracious. Okay. I would say, I would say a, a select few of the top men pros are hitting it you know, consistently near 180, 160 to 180. Damn. Okay. And the women are not that far behind that. I mean, we're 145 to 160s. I mean, we're hitting the, we're hitting the crap out of the thing, you know? Yeah. And um, so pattern recognition, it's knowing where to be before you need to be there and how to get there most efficiently and effectively. But again, it comes down to pattern recognition. And at the, at the elite level, we're all very capable. We're all very proficient. We're all consistent enough to be there. You know, we're all consistent to be at that higher, higher echelon. Um, so it comes down to the tinier little nuances. It comes down to tendencies. It comes down to, um, it comes down to um, based on your mechanical execution of a shot, do you have the mechanics to put it someplace where your opponent is not expecting it you know it's it's the tiniest little things from from how you hold the racket to how you may or may not you know angle your front foot <laughs> on a shot to are you are you are you able to be deceptive or are you giving it away where you're going to go with it you know um you know and a lot of it is also serve and serve return if you have a de 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 deceptive and effective serve uh mm -hmm. can you can on the return quickly enough and i mean all of those all of those things it just you know they're they're the they're the smaller finer points but they make the huge differences um at the top because you know we're all we all have the 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 base foundation of being um extremely good and it's it's the it's the smaller things that that separate you know the player that's moving on to the next round and the player who isn't it's the little things. It is the little things. In fact, a very good friend of mine who used to play the tour, she retired a few years ago to become a, a neuroscientist. She's Oh damn. Yeah. 
different. She's a smarty pants. I know. Okay. Um, but she, she had a, uh, you know, a business besides playing the tour. She, she also coached full time, um, where she lived and had her own, you know, entire coaching program. And, you know, her, her tagline was the difference between great isn't two or three major things. It's a thousand little ones. And it's mm-hmm. so appropriate. I mean, that's, that's literally what it comes down to. Are you doing the little things that make that difference that give you that, that smallest edge. Mm-hmm. And so to relate that to, we'll put it this way. I'm going to say word for word, the quote that I was asked and my friend wasn't giving me a quote. She was genuinely asking me this question. And I'm like, Oh my God, where did you get that? I'm so stealing that. She's like, get what? She's like, I was just asking you a question. I'm like, Oh, well I'm stealing that. I will give you credit for the rest of life, but I'm stealing that quote. We were on the phone and she said, is there enough evidence in your training to convict you of the goals that you claim to have? Now, if you replace the word training with whatever, is there enough evidence in your work ethic? Is there enough evidence in your dedication? Is there enough ev- is there enough evidence in your life, you know, the way that you live your life, you know, like insert verb or noun here, you know, like insert here and and that is a plug and play perfect quote that I think we can all ask ourselves just as a as a check-in, as a, as a reality check like am I in alignment? with the goals I say I want to achieve? What am I doing? If we can ask ourselves that and say yes, more times than not, we're all trending in the right direction. Absolutely. Are your actions aligned with your words? Exactly. That's what it's about. So I know there was something that that happened to you, something very traumatic. Um, And I'm going to let you kind of, you know, talk talk about that but um when i read about this and, and i saw the pictures it was like but then i kept reading and i read what you did afterwards it was like it gave me chills it gave me goosebumps can you talk to through that Rhonda? yeah and i'll be honest with you i i had a speaking engagement last friday and obviously it you know was part of the uh and I still get chills every time as well. Um, mm-hmm. So in 2008, I was living in Hermosa Beach, California. I was walking down the Strand. And for those who are unfamiliar, the Strand is that slab of concrete between the houses and the sand right there in front of the ocean. It's where you see, you know, in movies and TV shows, people biking, rollerblading, walking their dogs, taking a jog, that type of thing. So I lived right on the strand, four houses over from the Hermosa Redondo border. And um, I was going to get some water. It was later, late at night. But I mean, even if it's in LA, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I was trying to find, I was trying to find a store that was open. Um, I knew that the liquor store across the street was closed because I could see it from the window. Um, but I was not sure if the convenience store down, down the same side of the street um, couple blocks over was open yet or not. It's a Saturday night. I thought they might be. And I ended up getting jumped by two guys with brass knuckles. They came at me from behind. Um, I'll go ahead and give you the, the gory details. Uh, I saw one guy standing underneath me, like a street, a street lamp on the strand there. And he initiated contact with me. He's like, hey, what's up? Not much, man. How you doing? Doing all right. How about you? I'm like, eh, whatever. One is one o'clock in the morning. It's one o'clock in the morning, and dude, just you know, I'm. It, it's California, though. You know, everybody's kind of laid back, kind of cordial. You know, what's up? How you doing? You know, no big deal. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, as I got closer, this guy walks off of the dark patio of the house that was actually on the same property as the as the apartment I lived in above it, uh, behind above and behind it. Um, same property, different two different structures. This guy walks off the patio of my neighbor's um, home and the side out of nowhere. I never saw him coming. And he's like, what? What the fuck did you say to my boy? I'm like, whoa, nothing, man. I'm just on my way. You guys have a good night. And I intentionally put my hands in my pockets as a show of, I got no beef with you. I'm going to, I'm going to just be on my way. Like my bad. 
Didn't hear a thing. Next thing I know, bam! And I don't remember what it felt like, but I remember what it sounded like. And it sounded like um, celery snapping. Oh, okay. And um, before I could really process what was going on there, um, I had a second second hit from the other side. Bam! And uh, I don't know. I think I ended up taking about 10 to 15 shots. And all I could really do was kind of try to cover up like this and swirl away. And, and I did. I did a little flip and turn, and I turned around, and I squared up. And instinctively, I wanted to hit back. But my immediate thought was six weeks. I don't want to break my hand on your dumb, stupid face and not be able to hold my racket and go represent my country next month. So I didn't hit back, but I'm, you know, they're still standing there. They're in my face. And um, so you were still able to think, to think through. Yeah. Presence of mind to understand that I'm not going to escalate if I don't have to. I mean, obviously, if they, if they, you know, they came at me from behind, I had no chance to defend myself. Now that we're face to face, if, if I see fists coming again, of course, I will defend myself, but they're not swinging right now. I don't need to make it any worse and get hit some more when I, important to me right now. I need to make sure I'm okay in, in the next six weeks. That said, I had no idea the extent of my damage right now. Um, but I, uh, you know, I'm just kind of micro-evaluating the situation. And I think there was a, I, I mean, I know there was a few words exchanged. I don't remember exactly what the guy audio said, but the guy that initiated the uh, original conversation of, you know, hey, what's up? He was kind of freaking out. You could tell one was like, you know, the evil one and one was more of the follower. Um, mm. And anyway, they both took off. They're like, come on, man, somebody's going to see. Somebody probably heard we got to go. So they took off. And uh, when they did that, I turned around and I started walking, even though my property was right there. I didn't want them to know that I lived right there. So I turned around and I start walking south towards Redondo so I can go all the way around to the next opening and come out on the Hermosa Avenue side and come up back back to the street side of my, my to give away where I live. And I want them to feel like they have to finish me off. So you were still thinking. Yeah. Processing. Yeah. So then I'm, I'm walking home like this, right? Cause I was afraid my eyeball was going to fall out. Yeah. And it, this always makes me laugh too, but it's literally true story. Remember that first Pirates of the Caribbean movie? The very first one when there was that <laughs> yes, one, there was that one skinny pirate that had the wooden eyeball that kept falling oh. out all movie. I was yes. walking around like this. Cause I'm like, man, if this thing falls out, it's going to get sand in it. It's going to be gross. They're not going to be able to put it back in. I can't let it fall out. So I'm walking home like this, right? Oh. Years later, I did find out that it could have fallen out. I, oh, yeah, I asked for my, I asked for my medical records from that whole thing in the, in the hospital because um, I was still having issues and I needed to know I was moving on to a different provider and I needed to you know find out exactly what was going on from that hmm. incident um, um I'm walking home like this and I hear something and I turn around and it's you know the the evil one coming back coming back at me with his brass knuckles still on his hand with my blood still on him coming at me and running after me like he's gonna superman punch me and I remember very put my left hand out like this I'm like dude just stop just stop. And he stopped. And <clears throat> I put my hand out for two reasons. One, I wanted him to feel like, okay, I don't need do, to do anything to instill fear. You know, she's already telling me, you know, trying to back me up. I didn't want him to feel like he needed to exert something to prove another point. Um, and also I did that because I got one eye. I have no depth perception. If he does come in closer, I need this out here. I need to know how much spatial you know room i have if he comes at me again so that i can react soon enough so he said uh specifically he said fuck you bitch i'll fucking kill you where you stand i don't give a shit i just got out of prison bitch i'll fucking kill you i don't give a shit i'll kill you where you stand bitch i'll end you and at that point dropped my right hand 
my right eye had been completely swollen shut at this time. I have no vision whatsoever out of it. I dropped both hands and made two fists. And I said, okay, then kill me. Go ahead. I'm right here. Kill me. That's all I said. But what was going through, I was pissed. What was going through my mind instead was, you came at me two on one from behind the first round. You chicken shit motherfuckers. Now we're face to face. You're coming at me again. I don't care that you're a guy. I don't care that you're bigger than me. I don't care that you have a weapon. I hit for a living and I. So you very well might kill me tonight, but I will hurt you on the way down. So let's go. That was my thought. And like I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm waiting, you know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for him to flinch. I'm waiting, you know, to defend myself or go after him or whatever, whatever was going to happen next. Yeah. And he went. Got off again. I'm like, are we done now? <laughs> Can I go home? And to be honest with you, the I wasn't coward, coward, you're cowards. You know, yeah. the most cowardly thing you can do is jump someone behind. Two on one. And in the moment, two on one. Two on one. With brass knuckles. With weapons. Yeah. So I had no, it never even crossed my mind to call 911. It never even crossed my mind that I was going to need medical attention. Uh, it was, yeah, give me one second. She can't get through the door. Yeah. Sorry yeah. about that. No, no problem. Go ahead. Um, yeah, it never, it never crossed my mind. And all I was thinking as I resumed going home, Man, I hope I still have some Advil because this is going to be really sore in the morning. It never occurred to me the extent of the damage that may have been done. It never occurred to me to call the cops. Never, just never crossed my mind. I walked back in. My my girlfriend at the time, she and her friend were inside. It, it was her friend's birthday. Um, inside, you know, just drinking, having a good time, and I walked in, and I'm, you know, digging through the digging through the medicine cabinet. She comes around the corner to say something and she sees my face. It's just like, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> my literal reaction. I, I even remember shrugging. I go, I got hit. She goes, who hit you? Two guys downstairs. Why? I don't know. Go ask them. I don't know. They ran that way again. <laughs> um, anyway, during that very short exchange, her friend turned around and saw my face and, called 911 and they were there. I mean, it felt like 10 seconds they were there. Mm. Took me to the hospital, had scans, called an eye specialist and um, they came in and just breezed through. Like, I'm pretty sure the doctor didn't even like pause in her step stride as she walked from this door, in this door and out the other. Facial fractures. We're going to have another doctor come in here and consult on your uh, reconstruction. Um, we'll have someone in here shortly. Okay. I'm like, whoa, 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 back it up. What can you run that, run that by me again? I mean, just like, like you're dropping the milk, you know? All right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I facial fractures. I got jumped on June 1st. Um, I had facial reconstructive surgery on the 11th because the swelling was so bad. They couldn't, um, they couldn't proceed until the swelling came down significantly. That's why there was that delay. Um, we'll say that the most difficult thing for me in this entire experience was um, once we, you know, got the reports back from that doctor, um, she told me about, you know, needing a, a facial reconstruction and that my face was shattered. Um, the most difficult thing was to my girlfriend at the time, go down the hall to call my mother and hearing my mother's shriek from the other end of the phone from that far away. Mm. I can't unhear that. And it haunts me to this day because I know as an only child, as a child of divorce, as a child who has two, we're literally the most incredible examples of human beings any, any child could hope for because of how they treated each other and how they treated me despite the fact that they were divorced, they were always civil. They were always cordial. They always cared about each other. They always supported each other. And in doing so supported me. That I am their whole world. 
how that must have devastated them. And I knew, I knew immediately that I, I could not allow myself to be a victim, that I could not be a victim because there, that would hurt the people around me. And I don't want to do that to them. I remember she came back and handed me the phone and my mother is just wailing. And I'm like, mom, I'm okay. No, you're not. I'm like, mom, I'm fine. They didn't rape me. They didn't rob me. They didn't kill me. At the end of the day, I just took some shots to the face. We'll fix it. I'll heal up. I'll be fine. It's all okay. And I, and I, as I heard all of that coming out of my mouth, I realized I wasn't just trying, trying to quell my mother's emotions. That, that was my truth. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. Could have been a lot worse. And, you know, immediately I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm still going to go play world. I'm still, you know, I, I still thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my mother obviously flew out immediately. Uh, my father followed shortly behind and my poor father, I don't know how it got to him before my mom had a chance to call him, but We played as kids until something, yep. and by the end of the rest of the time it gets around the end of the circle, it's morphed into something completely unrelated. Yeah. My poor father, the way that he heard it was that I had been beaten to death with base- baseball bats and I was dead. Oh my gosh. So anyway, they were both out there, chop chop, and um me for a few weeks, I think. Um I was quite heavily medicated after that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um so Got jumped June first. Had facial reconstruction, facial reconstruction on June eleventh. Don't remember exactly when I got out of the hospital, but I do remember right away. I'm like, okay, how many days till I get on the plane to go to Worlds? Our flights left June, uh, July twenty seventh. Okay. And so I've got you know, kind of the last two weeks to ten days, whatever of, of June to. All right, let's go. Let's get ready to sleep laying down i could not eat solid food until october and i had to until go october. yeah and i and i i had to go back to the doctors every other day for the i think three weeks um to get my equilibrium reset and i was on so many medications I was on Vicodin, Dilaudid, Toradol, Lorazepam, something else that I don't remember and something else that I can't pronounce. Um, and I had a walker. I was had a walker because I was so heavily medicated, they didn't want me trying to walk without assistance. And um, all, I, all I could do to train for worlds was visualize. So I would visualize a workout in real time. I would the court and practicing in real time. I would visualize matches against opponents or even practice opponents um, in real time. If if a if a workout session or a practice session was going to take me two and a half hours, that's how long it took me to do the visualization because I was extremely specific. That's the key to effective visualization is of your senses and being as specific and detailed as possible, noticing every little thing with every sense every step of the way um because i couldn't do anything else i mean i watched video of my opponents i watched videos of the past matches i watched what worked what didn't and that was my mental rehearsal because that's all i could do i could on the hall they took the mirrors out of the bathrooms in the hospital and, and at home so that i didn't know what i looked like um i didn't see myself wow. i didn't see myself until late june and i cried <laughs> um but anyway, um, days after getting jumped, 53 days after facial reconstruction, and 29 days after abandoning all pain meds, I won my first world title, and they weren't even going to let me go. I remember oh, shortly, oh, shortly, after I, shortly I got, after I got out of the hospital, I had a, a phone call with our, our then U.S. team coach, a guy named Dave, and he... Um, you know, he wanted the update. How you doing? What happened? How you feeling? Is there anything we can do? And he ends, he tries to end the conversation with, well, heal up kid. You know, you know, we're all behind you and we're going to go play our asses off for you. I'm like, yeah. And I'm going to be playing my ass off with you. Ah, he's like, 
You're not going. Excuse me? The hell I'm not. World is the reason I didn't hit back. Don't you dare take this away from me. I was devastated. I was devastated that it was even possible that I wouldn't be able to go. Well, you got to be kidding me. I so much differently if I knew that you were going to take worlds off the table. I was, I, that was more devastating to me than any of the blows I actually took to my, to my head. Oh, wow. It hurt. It hurt. And I fell into a deep depression for some short period of time, a few days. And then I realized, I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't get through this in this state of mind. Um, so I sent an email to the coach, the U.S. team committee, the board, anyone I could think of. And I addressed it to the coach. I said, dear Dave, I understand whether or not I go to Worlds is not up to me. But whether or not I am ready for Worlds is entirely up to me. So you do what you need to do, have your meetings in your call, and do whatever you feel is truly best for Team USA. But just so you know, whether or not I will be ready to be the world champion by July 27th. And just so you know, I forgot about this sentence. I actually went back and reread that email after, you know, talking about it a few times, making sure that I still did remember it word for word. I actually forgot, forgot about this last sentence. And by the way, if Team USA doesn't win and I didn't go, that's on you. <laughs> that's confidence. The right nerve. There. Oh, my God. Like, I, I have to go goosebumps right That's like. Babe Ruth calling a shot with a full count, right? <laughs> I mean, I can't even, I can't even sleep laying down. I can't eat solid food, and I'm gonna, but I'm gonna go win worlds. And you did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. What the hell? Like, so just off of visualization, you um, getting beat to a pulp. Yeah. And you couldn't practice. You couldn't move. Hell, you I lost thirty-seven so pounds. You, Lost, and you lost. 30. I lost thirty-seven. I didn't have it to lose, man. <laughs> so, are you saying like that's the the power of the the power of the human mind and human spirit? Yes. And the power of visual visualization. And then just and then the biggest thing is this inner thing, this inner thing inside of you. Like if you can overcome this, like oh my. God, you went to Worlds and won it. And won. Two things. So uh, the first week I played in an outdoor tournament in Huntington Beach, and I had to have, you know, the, the face mask that was specifically made around my face, you know, for protection and whatnot. Um, okay. Yeah. I may or may not have been medically cleared at that time. I don't remember. Um, but I played, I played. I think I won one of them, but I remember being really pissed that I didn't win all three. Like I still expected to walk in there and, and still, you know, do what I do. Yeah. And for the most part I did. And I, our U S team coach had driven down from Stockton to watch me and evaluate me. And he, uh, and I had a long conversation afterwards and he was worried about quite a few things, understandably so. Um, but the the sentence that I think changed his mind and allowed me to go because he was significantly surprised by how I performed at that event. I said, Dave, I don't need my face to hit the ball. My arms and my legs still work. And he goes, I didn't think of it that way. I'm like, all right, well, you've seen what I can do with, you know, literally just getting out of the, out of the hospital bed. I still got two and a half more weeks before we leave. I'll be ready. And he actually went to bat for me on that, and and I got to go. And I remember when I hit the winning shot um, against my own U.S. teammate. We had an all-USA women's final, an all-USA men's final, and both doubles teams won. So we won first and second in the individual awards, and we won the women's overall, the men's overall, and the team overall. Team USA swept that year. I don't believe we've actually done it since. It was an, it was an absolute incredible team to be a part of. And I'm so grateful I got to go. When I hit that winning shot, after I, you know, hugged and congratulated my my teammate and opponent um, on a great tournament, I turned around and I just fell to my knees and I started bawling because all I could think of after that was I'm I wasn't even supposed to be here. Yeah. 
that in, in several different ways. Like not just that they weren't going to let me go to the tournament, but I mean, I could have died seven different ways that night and I didn't. And just the, the gravity of realizing through my own self expectations and knowing myself and what I'm capable of and why, why I had the audacity to, to, to call that shot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then to back it up, I, it was, it was not eye opening. It was validating about, you know, trusting myself, knowing myself, expecting exactly what I got of myself. And I'll tell you one other thing, the biggest, um, there's so many more little nuances to this, to this story, but the biggest umbrella life lesson I got, and you've said it a, a couple of different ways already, our introductory part of our chat. But mm-hmm. what I got out of it is nothing happens to you. It happens for you. This experience has given me so much more than it took away from me. My pain level on a daily basis is a 10 out of 10 or worse. I had another surgery. I mean, I had surgeries over, over the you know immediate couple of two, three years after the initial surgery, but I just had another one in 2021. They told me last year I need another one and I haven't gotten it yet. It sucks. It sucks. I don't like being laid up for weeks and months at a time. I don't like being able to not eat all the foods I want for months at a time. It hurts and it's still not getting any better. I'm, I'm getting no relief from these subsequent procedures. Um, but to me, that's my daily reminder of how much I have to be grateful for that. My daily pain is my daily reminder of the gratitude that I have everything that I have. I got my face shattered. Didn't cry. I had facial reconstructive surgery. Didn't cry. I, you know, got told all these horrible things about, I can't sleep. I can't lay down to sleep. I can't eat solid food. I can't, I can't, you know, all these things and, and got worlds taken. Cry. The first bouquet of flowers and the cards and the outpouring of support that started coming in as soon as I came out of the hospital and got home. I lost it. I was prepared for the, for the climb back up. I was prepared to the healing and the, the process and, you know, all the things. I was prepared for all of that. I was not emotionally prepared for the outpouring of support that I got. That blew me away. I have, I have so many stories that are just, I mean, just a single one of them would break your heart about, about the, the kindness of we actually show up that way for people. And, and I couldn't believe how that showed up for me. Um, yes. it, yeah, that's powerful. It's very humbling, extremely hum- humbling. But like I said, my, my, my umbrella lesson from that is nothing happens to you, it happens for you. And if you can look through that lens that life throws at you, whether it's in, whether it's in sport, whether it's in your fit within your family, within your business, within your career, within your, your goals and your trajectory, um, if you can, if you can look through that lens and it's not the cliche of finding a silver lining, a silver lining. Oh, well, at least, you know, it could have been worse. No, no, that's not it. Nothing happens to you. It happens for you is taking the experience and accepting the gifts that it's giving you. Even if you don't see them right away, they will be revealed. If you, if you allow them the, that they showed up to, uh, to give you i love that i call it repurposing yeah repurposing. yeah yeah Rhonda, this has been an amazing uh interview to hear how you overcame so feel uh you know the smile on your face it's like you get me all choked up and whatnot but <laughs> Rhonda, how can my listeners get more of you uh so uh, my Instagram is at Rhonda Rasich. Um, Facebook is as well, I believe. Um, my girlfriend and I have a have a a couple's uh, TikTok. It is La Rhonda L E R H O N D A two seven two three. Um, and my website is almost done. I got a message from my website guy this morning. It's almost done. It's getting there. And when the website comes out, it will be 
com. Hey. And um, yeah, I'm I'm doing I'm doing speaking intent with, with much more intention, not just waiting for it to fall into my lap. I'm pursuing it um, because I realize I realize that you know I have this incredible story that can hopefully help you know as as it can, and and it feels it feels selfish not to try to help if that's what I've been given and that that allows me to do so. So that, that, you know, people have asked, you know, if you knew you were going to get jumped that night, would you still walk down the strand at one o'clock in the morning? And with experience since that event, yes, I would have, because it didn't change my life for the worse. It wasn't, a, it was never a tragedy to me. It's just something that happened. And the meaning that I have assigned, assigned it is that it was, it was a gift because it was, it, it's allowed me to, to do this. It's allowed me to learn the things that I have that part of my journey that I can hopefully share with others, hopefully to help them or, you know, have some, some nugget that they can take with them and, and make a positive change for themselves. That's powerful. Rhonda, I love to have you on um, Shark Effect again. Um, yeah. Thank you. So, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's thank you. Much needed. So thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. Love being here. So check it. If you like today's show, I want you to do me a couple of favors. I want you to subscribe. I want you to give me a rating and give me a review. And then the fourth thing, I want you to share it. Okay? And I'm not saying this for selfish reasons. When you guys do this, the more ratings, the more stars we get, five stars are dope, but the more impactful guests that we can have on the show. And the more impactful guests we have on the show, I think the more insights and the more value we can deliver for you all, my listeners. Okay? So... You guys can do that, it'll help us out, which will in turn help you out. Keep aligning, assigning, and adjusting yourself to the person that you want to become. 